This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Caston-Smith, and I will be your host today. Joining me is Will Bushman, our Director of Student Ministries. Hey, Sam. What's going on? Nothing. What are you doing? Doing. I'm doing good. You're doing, doing good? good. <laughs> Hanging in there? So Will just came off of a Sunday where he was preaching about Genesis. How'd that go, Will? It was, the responses were fascinating. What do you mean? I think we've been doing this on the podcast, so our listeners know we're doing a very unvarnished look at the book of Genesis. Mm-hmm. And so on Sunday when I was giving the lowlights, as I described it, of these guys' lives, people were just like, I have never looked at it like that. Huh. Because we really do just pick and choose. Like, we want to make these guys great. And they were great overall. Like, we've sure. said that yep. time and time again. And we will say it again just to make sure this clip doesn't ever see the light <laughs> of day. But we really do want to make everything works based in our human world. Like, Completely. we want to make it a performance thing. Mm-hmm. We don't want to look at Abraham and be like, man, he, he messed up a lot. Because then that looks at us and we're like, well, I've messed up a lot. Mm-hmm. So it was a f- like everyone was like most responses I've ever had about a sermon were just like whoa. Did you hear anybody? Was anybody like, don't talk about my patriarchs like that? I, I got one, but it was it was good. Yeah, you know, it was it was it was thoughtful. Also, that sermon I realized not many people have read the book of Genesis. <laughs> they were just the faces horrified. But like it is true that like Genesis is just a wild ride. Yeah, so when I when I first wrote for my my textbook that that's used in schools and I went back and started rewriting my old book like the chapters I had written on the patriarchs and I went back with kind of this more unvarnished part like when I was writing about Jacob <laughs> you're like I can't do this. Yeah, like it it kind of shook me because like I love these guys. I still love these guys, yeah. but when I was going through it I was like, man, like I don't think if I lived back then I don't think I would have been your friend Jacob. Like, you know, oh, I wouldn't let Jacob near my people. <laughs> right? Like but it really does. Like the only way you can make sense of why God would inspire these people and throw those stories in. Like if you wanted your if you wanted your people to look at the patriarchs and be like, man, let's let's emulate everything about them, which you should emulate the good things about them. But if you if if God wanted you to emulate everything about him, he, he would have like they would have gotten rid of all of those flaws. But the point of it is, these are men who need grace and mercy every bit as much as you do. And it's there for them, and it's there for you. Yeah, that's why Paul in Galatians, which is what we're in on Sundays, it's just it's such a powerful argument against these people who are trying to earn salvation to be like, hey, all the way back to Genesis twelve, nothing's going on that you're earning anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like these guys' lives, I've put in mostly bad stuff about their lives. To be honest, mm-hmm. if you took a percentage of like what Abraham and the patriarchs do, that's good. It's way less than what they do wrong. <laughs> Seems that way. For yeah, sure. like it's definitely like. What's recorded, at least. So it is a clear interpretation that's like, hey, God was holding on to these people. Mm-hmm. Like, it's purely the promise. We said that a thousand times. I even yeah. quoted you in the sermon. I didn't give you any credit, so sorry. Uh, but I was like, this is a family who is actively trying to lose the promise, it seems. <laughs> like, it's like all of their behavior, they're trying to be like, hey, God, let's let's relook at this. And he won't. Yeah. Which is, which is the glorious part of this. But... And back in Jesus's day, you know, the point of this, you had so many people who were like, we're on team Abraham and we're on team Moses and we think we can be good enough. And it's like, what, did you read the story of Abraham? <laughs> it's like, it was God's faithfulness and grace and mercy purely that yeah. qualified Abraham. You know, Abraham believed the Lord and God credited it to him as righteousness. It was all by faith, certainly not by works. Um, Anyway, it's it's just it's been a fascinating ride as we keep saying to go through Genesis taking the the rose-colored glasses off. Yeah, and it was funny looking back at Genesis 12 cuz like the moment he decides to be faithful Abraham in that very same chapter is when he tries to give yeah. Sarah away. Yeah. It's like we don't even get a we don't even turn the page before it all goes sour. <laughs> yeah. If you're trying to make these guys 
virtuous, like they earned the favor of God, you, you better break out a lot of whiteout yeah. <laughs> on the pages of this the Bible. Be a CIA redacted file. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. All right, so we are, we're actually currently going through uh, the fourth generation of the patriarchs. So you had, you had Abraham, you had Isaac, you had Jacob, and now Jacob has 12 sons, and the Bible kind of focuses in on two of them. And so far, we've, we've had two of those chapters. In chapter 37, we saw Joseph betrayed by his brothers, and he's sold for silver, and he's sent down to Egypt where he's going to be sold into slavery Chapter 38 is kind of this interlude where it's like, okay, now back at the ranch, let's look at what the the wicked brothers are doing. And you get this wild picture of Judah who is, you know, gross and he's marrying Canaanites and he's mistreating his daughter-in-law uh, and, and sleeping with shrine prostitutes, he thinks. And eventually, at the end of that story, he's, he's kind of called to the carpet on his character and repents. And it seems like he genuinely changes in that moment because he's going to be seem redeemed for the remainder of the book of Genesis. And so when we get to chapter 39, it's like, you know, the, the camera angle of the Bible has now turned back to Joseph. And it's like, okay, remember he got sold down to Egypt? Well, let's check that out. What's happening to Joseph in Egypt? And so beginning in chapter 39, it says, verse one, now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. And so what this means, Joseph is sold down, and and this is actually going to be something that the Lord is going to use. He is sold to somebody who is a very high rank. Um, when it says that he's the captain of the guard, there's a lot of theories about what that means. It could mean that he handles Pharaoh's personal security. It could mean that he is way high up in, uh, as an army official. But it could also mean that he is the lead of Pharaoh's team of executioners. And the reason why some people think that is when it says captain of the guard, the word guard in Hebrew literally means butchers. <laughs> so Oof. so these he's the captain of a group of guys known as the butchers. So okay. they're, they're either in charge of execution or they're like Pharaoh's elite guys that are really good at. Okay. Seal team six. Okay. Yeah, that's right. They're, they're the seal team. And so, Joseph is being sold to this man, and so that is going to make him close to the seat of power. Okay. One of the other interesting things about what it just said when it says Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, the word that is there for officer, which is kind of cleaned up, three-quarters of the time that word is used in the Old Testament is translated as eunuch. And so if you were going to be a, a major official in in a in a in a regime, it didn't. It happened in Babylon. It happened in Egypt. It happened around the world at that time. You were made to be a eunuch, and so even from birth, if somebody was being trained up to be an official for the king, they would make them a eunuch, which means that they are castrated. They 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 have no hope of going to have a family. They want nothing to be able to compete with your loyalty to Pharaoh. And so it was kind of a, a trade that oftentimes parents would make for the children that you would have an easy life. You would be an official that's going to be taken care of. You'd have lots of wealth and privilege and everything else, but you're forfeiting the prospect of having children. And so that if he is indeed a eunuch, which he might not be because sometimes that word is translated officer, but if he is a eunuch, then that means that his wife is just going to be pure decoration. Like mm. there, he cannot have children with her. They cannot have a family. And a lot of people in the commentaries think that that might play into the role as to why his wife, what's about to happen. Correct. <laughs> why his wife is desperate to look elsewhere. Right. <laughs> so he's an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, and had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. And it says the Lord was with Joseph. And, and I just pause there. So here you have, like, because this is this is confusing, right? Okay, hold on a minute. I just got sold. My dad thinks I'm dead. You've taken me hundreds of miles away from my homeland. I'm now enslaved, and I'm serving a guy who's the captain of the butchers. And right, and and you're saying the Lord was with Joseph. Because what what do we immediately want to do? Like if you, if you've just been put through the ringer of injustice and a whole bunch of bad things just happened to you, 
you want to translate that to mean that the Lord was not with Joseph, and yet exactly the opposite. How do you make sense of that? Yeah, we want to equate suffering with God's absence. Always. But the Lord is with him in his sufferings. The Lord's not absent. The Lord didn't let go of the steering wheel. He is using all of this, and he's not only using it to rescue the world, but ultimately he's going to use it to rescue Joseph. This is, Mm -hmm. believe it or not, like... Slavery is awful. Nobody's defending slavery. But this is exactly what Joseph needed for not only himself and character development in the story to make him into the man that the world needed, which is super controversial to say, but it also is something that the world needed. He is put in exactly the right spot for God to steer him into power so that he can ultimately save the world later in the story. It's a jarring verse because it's like, oh, God was still with Joseph when he was thrown in the pit. Mm-hmm. God was still with Joseph as his brothers deliberated his future. Mm-hmm. God was still with Joseph when the Ishmaelites paid silver for him. God, you know, so yeah. it's one of those ones where you're like, oh, this this changes all of life's perspective. Yeah, I mean, it, and it takes the prosperity gospel and totally throws it out. Like you, you, how how would a prosperity gospel that says that if you're drawing near to the Lord, you should be wealthy and blessed and protected and victorious, and and it takes somebody who no doubt is in tears, who's yeah. crushed by what's just happened to him. He had all these high hopes. You know, God was going. I mean, God's given him dreams about how he's going to be exalted and how how he's going to be raised up, and and all of a sudden it's like this is this is the path to that. And the crazy thing is Joseph does not lose faith mm-hmm. in the promises of God that were given to him in the dreams through through all of this story. If he ever had a moment, which I'm sure he did just because he's human, where he was on his knees going, what are you doing, God? We're not told about it. He just remains faithful, and he's always going to be pointing people's eyes to the Lord. And so when it says the Lord was with Joseph, like I don't think that's just in the fact that God was sovereignly orchestrating all the plans around Joseph. It's relational, right? Yeah, I think the Lord was with mm-hmm. Joseph. And cool. in the middle of his suffering, there was sweetness with Joseph and the Lord. Yeah, I guess I forget even like to be in Joseph's shoes and you were just this on the mountaintop because you had these visions of a life of just pure superiority over everybody now you find yourself just enslaved it's like the gap between those two makes all of this suffering even more wild yeah and i was reading a commentary and it's an interesting take but what they were saying and i've read like luther talked about this when when he wrote about freedom and bondage but the commentator was saying you know here you have joseph who's with the lord who has a clean conscience and even though he's enslaved he's utterly free in his spirit like he has a great relationship with God. He he has nothing that's binding his conscience. He has no guilt and shame over what he's done. And meanwhile, the brothers are free. But you'll see, you know, at the end of this story, they're like, oh my gosh, this is justice for everything we've done. Like they're walking around with guilt. They know they've done wrong. So they're walking around. And even though they're free, they're in bondage to their guilt. They're in bondage to their sin and, you know, this this story gives such a crazy dichotomy where even though Joseph is constantly in this story, it seems like he's he's getting injustice after injustice, he's free. And everywhere he goes, he brings blessing. And you don't get the sense that he's, you know, pouting and saying, you know, I deserve better and angry at God, which is wild. Like, that's incredible faith. But at the same time, You get the sense that all the brothers, it's just broken tragedy back home. Like they are enslaved to the mess they've created, even though there's no chains around their wrists or ankles. That's wild. It's wonderful. Yeah. You know, Joseph, oddly enough, in this story, in the spiritual sense, he's the free one. So anyway, it says, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And so imagine this. So you're, you're in relationship with God. You feel the freedom. Even though you're in a situation where you, you, know, you deserve better, this is an injustice, but God is just causing everything to be blessed in your hands. Like, every, like everything you do turns to gold with the butchers. And, and so now all of a sudden, in one of the more powerful houses in all of Egypt, the master sees this and says, uh, I'm going to put you in charge of one of the more powerful houses in all of Egypt. And think how 
much you touching things turns to gold for the master to see even one of his slaves doing anything, much less yeah. to notice. Like it's what Joseph's doing is that wonderful. It's that successful that the master's like, whoa, something's going on with this slave. Yeah. And it's, you know, he, it's not like he doesn't have other officials and peoples he's working with, right? So he's got, he's the captain of the butchers. There's lots of butchers around. There's lots of guards around. There's probably like, some assistance involved too. You yeah, got to think. Imagine not, the jealousy there. Like you just, you just got passed over by a slave. <laughs> tough, <laughs> right? But I mean, really, like I know this is super inappropriate to say, but imagine all of a sudden, you know, Tom, senior pastor, wants to to move along, and he takes the person who's the very lowest on the org chart and says, yeah, they're going to be senior pastor now. People wouldn't like that. Well, it depends on who it is. That's true. <laughs> you know, but, but it would be jarring, very jarring. So, But what I'm saying is imagine how much that person has to stand out. If, yeah. you're, if you're the parking attendant or whatever, yeah. and all of a sudden – you're like, man, everything this guy does just brings revival. And everything he touches turns to gold. We're going to make the parking attendant the new senior pastor. And everything continues to be blessed, right? Like, So it's, it's not like the thing blows up and that was a bad decision. This is a good decision. And the Lord makes him that noticeable, which is awesome. And again, it's interesting how like we have a modern correlation to this. Like the world hasn't changed that much. Like this was wild in their day. It's wild in our day. No matter how much distance we get from it, some things never change. Yeah. Yeah. You, you're not supposed to violate the hierarchy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Verse five, it says from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptians house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. And so what's what's going on here is God's not only giving Joseph favor so that he's noticed and elevated. Remember, it's not beyond God's control to have rescued him from slavery from the start. He, I mean, he could have kept Joseph out of slavery. He could have ordained events to rescue him before he landed here. But the Lord was with him in the descent into slavery, and now the Lord is using that tragedy. He's using that injustice not just to elevate Joseph to a position of power where he's being noticed in Egypt, but he's also evangelizing this dude's household. Like how many people are watching Joseph going, man, your God is way better than my God's like, look at my life, you know? And so there's an evangelistic element here where Joseph in his faithfulness allows God's blessing to kind of work through him to this household, showing everybody that his God is far better than their gods. And so verse 6, it said, the captain of the guard, Potiphar, he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. That would be a good org chart, <laughs> to be the top guy. And the only thing you're worried about is getting, you know, where you're going to get lunch. Everything I like that else Potiphar is a foodie. He's like, <laughs> you're right. You know, I want to control of one thing and one thing only in this household. What am I going to eat tonight? <laughs> That'd be nice. That'd be nice. I could take that. Yeah, that's, I mean, living the dream at that stage. So it, it tells us, you know, here's another benefit that Joseph has. He was handsome in form and appearance. I mean, he had to be. All through the book of Genesis, you're just talking about his grandmas being so attractive that you have to lie that they're your sister so you don't die. <laughs> this is just genetics just playing a role. But apparently this genetics only comes from the females because he's the first one, I think. That's true. That he's we're the first told male. He's, he's handsome. You, the other people in the Bible that are talked about as handsome, David is referred to as handsome. Gets him in trouble. Yep. Absalom is handsome. And outside of that, like... I, I don't think there's any other men that are referred to as handsome. So Joseph is is the first man. We got lots of beautiful women. He's the first handsome man. And I guess they only give you that detail when something bad is going to happen. Yeah. And you notice, like, it, this just occurred to me because something is, bad is going to happen because he's handsome in form and appearance. But all of Joseph's suffering stems from the fact of that he was blessed. You ever think about that? Like he would have been sold into Egypt if he never got the multicolored coat and the, you know, Jacob wasn't going, Oh, you're my favorite. <laughs> you know, that's the reason why the brothers hate him is because he's blessed. And so now here he's blessed again with being handsome and being, you know, influential. And so what happens Verse seven, 
After a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph. So hmm, he's handsome in form and appearance. And my husband potentially could, could be a eunuch. So she cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. And this is like forceful language in the Hebrew. It doesn't lie with me is abrupt it's enough. It's an offer. But it, it would be like just coming up to somebody and saying, bed now. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's, let's go. It's forward. <laughs> right. She's, she's not, she's not, she's not shy. And so <clears throat> one of the other things that's interesting about this story is it's usually when you have something that is like the, the, the dirt ball move, it's always a man who's using his authority to oppress those that are, that are powerless or women around him. But in this story, you actually see somebody who has the power, you know, being Potiphar's wife, who is using her power to, you know, try to oppress or take advantage of Joseph. And so what, what does this show to us? It shows us that this is not a, you know, men are bad, women are wonderful issue. It's a, a fallen humanity issue that wherever you find power, you find corruption. So when, when men have power, you're going to find corrupt men who abuse that power because all of humanity is fallen. And when you find a woman who has power, you're going to find corruption not because it's a woman, but because all of humanity is fallen and corrupt. And wherever you find people with power, regardless of whatever their gender is or regardless of whatever their race is, when people are given power, it is natural in the fallen order of things that they will use it to serve their own purposes and they will abuse it and become corrupt. And so we're just showing here equal opportunity offending that when women have power, we see that they can be corrupt as well. It says he refused and said to us, and it's like all of a sudden when you see that, it's like, can you remember when a patriarch has had something that is very alluring, very tempting? It's our first moral adjustment. Yeah, I mean, like he refused, <laughs> right? And But then listen to the reasoning. He said to the master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Amen. Like this is a nice cold drink of water in the book of Genesis. Yeah, it's a surprise. Isn't it? Like everywhere else, when when someone has something to gain, you know, because it's he could have been thinking, one, just satisfy the the desires, you know, simple human pleasure. I could I could chase after that. It would be very easy for me. But then beyond that, like I could gain more advantages here for myself. It could be a totally selfish move, and yet he knows that it's wrong in the eyes of God. And beyond that, he knows that it's wrong to betray his master, like my master has given me everything. He's entrusted me with everything. He's taken care of me. He's shown me kindness. He has been so good to me. Like how in the world could I possibly betray him? Yeah, for sure. The easier route is sleeping when they're in this moment. Yeah, that would be, that would be what normal fleshly humanity does. Yeah, Cause even you could like be like, Joseph could be thinking like, is Potiphar really going to give all of this up just because I slept with his wife? Yeah. Like, would he, would he really do something? Like, at this stage, he's probably just happy with where he's at. Verse 10, it says, And as she spoke to Joseph day after day. So now, this, this isn't like a one-time thing. This is every single day she's coming and trying to seduce him. But he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went out into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled out and got out of the house. So you got to imagine, you know, his outer robe ripped away, and now he runs out of the house and basically his undergarment. So it would be like, you know, akin to you running out of the house in your underwear. Everybody outside the house is going to be like, something interesting just happened. Will's running through the neighborhood in his underwear. <laughs> so you know, there's not going to be any denying the fact that something happened. But what does that mean about him? It means 
that he would rather endure the humiliation of having to run out of the house in his underwear mm. and risk all the rumors and all the speculation and the gossip and the slander than to actually violate his faithfulness to God and his master Potiphar. Yeah, he literally fleed from temptation. Yeah, <laughs> and at great cost to himself. You know, he was willing to, to endure it. Verse 13, it says, And as soon as she saw that, that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us, which is to like make sport of us, humiliate us. And so you get the sense here, this is the first time apart from her actively trying to cheat on her husband, where she's actually got some disdain toward her husband. It's like, see what he did? He brought this mm. Hebrew in here to, to humiliate us. And now you can tell she does not like her husband, does not think highly of him. Yeah. And so, but this all goes back to the, to the fall, by the way, there's elements of that. Can you see that? Like, here's something beautiful in the house. So it's, it's actually, you know, here's, here's Potiphar's wife, who has something beautiful in front of her, and because it's beautiful, she wants to take it and consume it, you know, as a probably a better way to say that, but you get what I'm saying. It's echoing the fall, and the moment it blows up into her face and shame and everything else is all over the place, what does she do? It's your fault, you know. You're the one who, who brought him here to humiliate us. And so she's really laying it down at, Joseph's feet, and she's essentially saying he tried to rape me. And so he came in here to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Verse 16, then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me to make sport of me, to humiliate me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Now, what, what do you notice about this? Does this feel familiar? No. <laughs> so, so here you have Joseph, right? And, and what has Potiphar done? He, is, he has let everyone in the house know, this is my favorite, right? Does this sound oh, familiar? Oh, yeah, I see it now. Okay, and so then what happens? The one who jealousy, is yeah. jealous of him takes his garment, right? And then uses the garment to mislead Potiphar, just like the brothers misled J Jacob and said, oh, look, this bloodied coat. I wonder who this could be. Like, And then Jacob is in mourning thinking his son is dead because they've sold him off. And now here you have Potiphar who's being led to the wrong conclusion because Joseph once again has someone who's jealous of him who is selling him out and using his garment to lead the, the master to the wrong conclusion. So throughout the story of Joseph, what you're going to find is every time his clothing changes, his circumstances change. It's kind of fascinating. The boy who keeps losing his robe. Yeah, keep your clothes on. Yeah. <laughs> Get it together. You need to stitch that stuff and like strap it I'll around. Be, like, I'll be walking around just with my arms crossed around my robe. <laughs> Get not losing straight this jacket, guy. straight jacket, coat. But anyway fascinating how these parallels are going and there's no in this because vain at times there's no denying like joseph can't be like hey potiphar not my robe yeah like it's obviously his yeah it's not like it's his, mass produced through yeah, nike it's or his Under identity Armor. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's yours and when when he would have moved up in in the structure of the household his clothing would have changed you know in mm. egypt just like in rome and other cultures when your power changed so did your clothing whatever strata you were in determined what colors you could wear, what, what outfit you wore. And it was to, to show people that you are in charge. And so, yeah, he would have definitely been recognized by his clothing. And it says, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke, now what would you expect to happen? A slave sleeps with the master's wife. What's, what's coming in Egypt? I mean, I, I, I mean, if I'm the butcher, I'm butchering it. Right? And this is the captain of the butchers. So it's not like, it's not a far stretch from him to be like, hey, one of you guys. <laughs> yeah, he has the means and the ability to get It's get right it there. It's right there. And yet he doesn't. Why not? And so, so as soon as the master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, 
this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him, and you're waiting for it to be, you know, he slaughtered him. But it says he put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. And later on, you find out that the prisoner's part of this house or this complex. So, you know, you, this guy is in charge of making sure that Pharaoh's enemies are punished, and now Joseph is among these people in this prison. But the Lord, here we go again, ready? But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. And you're, again, like what is this driving into your head? His circumstances change. He's just been accused unjustly. He's now being thrown. The only way you can go from slave to get worse is prisoner. <laughs> you know, like, That's true, yeah. Like what, what else could, what status in life, what station in life could you fall further to besides prison? And so here he is in prison, and it's like, oh, the Lord was with him and showed him steadfast love. And we want to say, hey, you want to show me steadfast love? Get me out of here. Yeah, get me out of here or stop ordaining or allowing this stuff to keep happening to me. And yet it is precisely steadfast love. This is what, you know, in the because Joseph is really going to be focusing on how God sovereignly weaves together the wicked actions of humanity to bring about redemptive, beautiful endings. And Joseph doesn't seem to struggle here. You know, he takes he takes what the Lord has allowed to land in his lap, and he celebrates, I mean, maybe not celebrates, but he receives it, and he knows that this is a God who loves him and a God who is sovereign over all things. And through all of this, he never lets go of the faith that God gave me those dreams. So somehow, some way, even though it seems like I just keep descending through the floor, God is going to raise me up. And the Bible knows we need that. Like the Bible knows that we need these like interludes. It's just like, I know you're reading this and you're like, what is going on? It's just like when I'm looking in our modern day at someone who's really just going through suffering. Mm-hmm. Even thinking about, a, I, I texted you that Tim Keller tweet that yeah. Tim Keller has entered into hospice. And I was just like, I was sad, but also a little bit mad. That's just like, yeah, what the heck is going on? Yeah, don't take him. Yeah, like, why him? Like, looking at our world right now, yeah. like, why him? But then you read his tweet that's like, like when his son was saying like, yeah, dad's, his prayer is just like, he's been so grateful for the time he's had. Mm-hmm. He's been so grateful for this family. He's been so grateful for the love of God in his life up in this exact moment. Mm-hmm. And so, like, the Bible knows that we're looking at Joseph's story just like that. Like we're, we're on the outside being irate, and Joseph's just like, no, I'm okay because yeah. God's with me. You know, when he was diagnosed with his cancer, and it had a, a very bad prognosis, and it looked like, you know, death was imminent. This is not a cancer that you typically come back from, particularly where he was at. You know, he wrote a book on the resurrection, and he said, you know, going into it, he'd started kind of writing it, and, but it was all still very much up in the head, yeah. you know, and, and the moment that you're faced, and you know, the same was true with Mark walking with him through his cancer diagnosis. You know, when you, when you put your hope in the resurrection, all that is very theoretical mm-hmm. up in your head, right? But the moment you receive the news, you're going to die. Mm-hmm. It, it's coming. That day is coming. It does something, but the grace of God works through you to make the resurrection power and the resurrection reality of what Jesus has accomplished all the more real to you in that moment. And Keller, and when he finally did write his book on on resurrection, like he talks about that, how it's been one of the sweetest seasons of his entire life where this is really, the coin has dropped and this has become very real to him. And, you know, there's two ways that you process suffering. One is, God, why are you doing this to me? I deserve better. And then the other one is to look at it and say, okay, these are all of the promises that God has already given me that are in store for me, regardless of what this suffering does. At the end of this, on the other side of this, there is something that is so much more beautiful that, as Paul says, that all of our present sufferings are not even worthy to be compared to what's in store for us. And that takes someone like a Joseph who's been given the promise, you're going to be exalted. You are going to be raised up. So any suffering that you might have to endure on the journey to that exaltation, you know what? Like, 
it's it's not fun. Your tears are real. That pain is real. Those cries to God are no less sincere and well-received by God. But when you walk through a valley of suffering, knowing that exaltation's on the other side, it makes the suffering meaningful, and it makes the suffering bearable. Yeah, it's, it's wild. You know, but if you told me, you know, you're going to go through all this suffering, you know, but eventually you're just going to die and worms are going to eat you and your soul, which is non-existent, just disappears. How do you suffer through that? Like, how do you just say, okay, the rest of my, like right now, you know, if I, if I, if we lived in an era before doctors and surgery and this was, you know, this nerve pain and everything else was just the rest of my life and then you die. Like check, please. (laughs) Like why, how do you, I don't understand how people suffer well without the hope of resurrection. I just don't, but he, that's part of what we're seeing in Joseph. He can suffer well. Why? Because he has the hope of God's promise. Yeah. It's so interesting that suffering is mostly used to debate that God doesn't exist, but in the end it's like one of the greatest (laughs) Pointing to God, this is going to be bad wording, but like like you said, like the fact that there are people walking around right now in awful earthly circumstances, mm-hmm. yet they can walk around filled with joy and peace is just the greatest example, especially in my young life, to watch people go through suffering and just to see that they're still clinging to Jesus is just absolutely yeah. amazing. Yeah. I think it's Lewis who says that God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in kind of the ordinary circumstances, but he, you know, he shouts to us in our pain. It's God's megaphone to raise a deaf world. Mm-hmm. It's really true. And the same is true when somebody's going through suffering. It's like God puts a megaphone to their faith for the world to see. Because if I come to you and I say to you, you should really worship Jesus because he's the answer to, you know, life's longings and everything else. People are going to hear that and go, okay, you know, thanks, Sam. Pretty good. Yeah, it's nice, you know, whatever. But if somebody who's walking through the darkest depths of suffering, you know, they've they've lost a child, they've they've been diagnosed with a terminal disease, and they look at you and say, life is sweet because I have Jesus and that's enough. And he is so good. Now, all of a sudden you're like, holy, you you listen to that person saying the same thing, but it's like suffering makes those words so much weightier, right? I mean, rightly so. A Jesus who looks at you through massive amounts of suffering and says, this proves I love you. You know, I'm, I'm giving it all. I'm suffering everything for you. That weight of love feels so much heavier than someone who just says, pat on the back, I love you. You know, there's something about suffering that adds tremendous gravity to whatever that person says, one one direction or the other. I think that's the beautiful part about our church, and obviously it's not just our church, but even a multi-generational church is um, being, <laughs> being on church staff, we hear mostly bad news. Like if you go through our Rio staff thread, it's it's not always the most uplifting thing. It's, <laughs> it's prayer. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's prayer. It's like, hey, would you guys pray? Like, just like things are chaotic. Yeah. In our world, cancer, surgeries, and just constant things. Yeah. But then when I get to Sunday, I don't know how many times this has happened. Probably almost every single week that I get the privilege of knowing people's stories, the good parts and the bad parts, and to watch people knowing their stories and knowing the sufferings they face and knowing the adversity and the obstacles in their life, and they're still worshiping Jesus. Yeah. It's just like powerful. It is. It's just like one of those things like, like I know what that person's going through in this moment, and they're still lifting up their hands and praising Jesus. Yeah. And it's just one of those ones where it's like, oh, that's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was weeks ago where we were singing the song sound mine for a spirit of fear. Mm. And Emily was belting that out. And in my row where people I knew were walking through dark depression. Um, and it had some really hard things in their lives. And I looked over and I saw one arms raised, you know, tears coming down the face and and man, tears were coming down my face. It was like, you know, the sweetness of God to, to deliver that word to her in that moment and for her to be able to take every all these heavy burdens and 
the darkness and set it aside for the hope of the Lord mm-hmm. and to feel joy and freedom and release in that moment to where the tears start flowing, man, it, make, it makes me love the Savior more. Yeah, you know, And there's something about, you know, in the Bible it talks about that in the church, you know, there's a fellowship of suffering, yeah. right? And there's something about that that when we share our suffering with others, when we're a genuinely vulnerable, open community and we can show everyone else our wounds, you find freedom from it. And it makes you love each other more. And it makes you more grateful to God that cares for these people and, and provides for these people through that. And there's, there really is something about suffering that magnifies ministry. You know, Mike, your greatest friends are people who have suffered with you, yeah. who've gone to, you know, the pits of hell with you. It's, it's not the, the person who's talking with you casually about, you know, a magazine headline or whatever. It's the person who's walked through stuff. Suffering is powerful. It accomplishes a lot. And so here you have the Lord was with Joseph, you know, in the middle of this awful suffering, this unjust prison sentence. And he showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So here we go again. Now you've got a prisoner showing that the Lord is with him. And now God is evangelizing all these prisoners. And it's like, why does God allow, you know, this interlude? Well, you don't know who comes to faith through this. You don't know what prisoners come to faith through this. And it's like God in his sovereign mastery over history is bringing about all and ultimately is going to save the world through this. But you never know what Joseph's evangelistic faithfulness is going to do for people that are in his path. Yeah, because you have Joseph here in the worst times of his life, but eternal souls are being eternally changed because mm-hmm. he found himself at his worst. Mm-hmm. For sure. Which is crazy to think about. And I kind of I kind of hate that. <laughs> Not that people are coming to Jesus. Don't don't say that, but like man, this this doesn't allow me to complain about suffering. It only allows me to worship in suffering, which I don't like. Necessarily, yeah. And the and the Bible's you know in the middle of suffering, you're allowed to cry out, you know, and and the Psalms give you that permission, you know, yeah. the, the how long, O Lord, you know, where you're you know you're allowed to get mad, mm-hmm. but the only way that you're going to persevere through suffering with any kind of joy or peace in your soul is when you remember God's faithfulness to you throughout your life, you remember His character, and you remember His promises of what He's going to do in the future with your life. And that frees you from the need to sit and worry about it. It frees you from from the questions. Does God love me? Like, why would he allow this to happen to me? You know, of course he loves you. Like, that was answered on the cross. God loves you. And by the way, that suffering that he allowed his own son to walk through ultimately redeems the entire world. And so God suffered for you. And it, there's something about like when, when we are suffering and we want to point the finger up to heaven, you know, we are not pointing that finger at a God who did not suffer because of us. Jesus in the garden says, you know, let this cup pass for me. He didn't want to suffer, but he found you worthy of suffering. His love for you made his suffering worthy. And so like that's, you always have to remember that when you're going through your situation, like this is nothing that God hasn't done for you to give you a promise that will be there on the other side of your suffering. And the beauty of Jesus is that allows us to, you know, that verse from Paul that this light and momentary affliction, mm-hmm. like it's not that he's demeaning your suffering. It's not like he's not with you in suffering. He doesn't, it's not like he doesn't understand the gravity of the pain you're in or the emotional turmoil you're in. It's that the hope we have is so great and wonderful that yeah. it just pales in comparison. Yeah, that weight of glory. Yeah, I love that line in that verse. Um, <clears throat> so God's with Joseph. The keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison, and whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And so Joseph, in spite of his injustice, is working for the people that are, in some sense, kind of responsible for that injustice. And he's still giving his best. He's still working as unto the Lord. He's still faithful. He's, he's trying to bless those that are persecuting him here. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. And by the way, 
you know, he, from the time that he is sold by his brothers to the time where he's exalted by Pharaoh, that's age 17 to age 30. So this is 13 years. He is going to spend all of that time building up reputations and making people think, this guy's good. I like this guy. To where when it comes time for his moment, they have good things to say about him, to refer him to Pharaoh for his exaltation. You know, he doesn't burn a whole bunch of bridges sitting in prison or in his master's house going, you scumbags, how dare you do this to me? Do you know who I am? I'm going to be exalted one day and I'm going to get you. Like he's just kind and faithful and he serves and he, he does well. And ultimately that leads him to be exalted. Yeah, I guess that's the truth that I don't think about a lot, that your reputation is forged in other people's opinions of you during the bad times, not the good times. Yeah. I mean, largely. Yeah, which is crazy to think about. And Joseph shows that to us. Like, Yeah, the bad times are going to be what reveals your character more yeah. than the good times. It's like the, the old bridge analogy where, you know, you can look at a bridge and it can look healthy, but you, you put a megaton truck on that bridge and it's going to expose every crack and flaw and creak. And, you know, it's, it's the hard times that reveal character. They really expose it. And so it's being exposed in Joseph and he is impressive. And so jumping into chapter 40, we're going to make quick work of chapter 40 on this, but it says sometime after this, the cupbearer, <laughs> just casual, like you just said, 13 years past yeah. the Bible, I was just like, Hey, sometime after this, you know, he's been in prison and shambles. Yeah. So just sometime. Yeah. So he's, he's in prison. It says sometimes, sometime after this, the cupbearer of the King of Egypt, a cupbearer, somebody who drinks the cup of the King and to make sure that it's not poisoned. So this guy is a close official. He would have been super trusted by the king of Egypt. This is somebody who holds the king's life and death in his hands, somebody that the king has to trust. This can't be somebody who's open to be bribed to assassinate. Which is so funny because you put your the person you put your trust in, your friend, you probably give your friend that job, but like yeah. his job is like, I want you to die before me just in case. <laughs> well, hopefully, you know, chances are you're not going to die, but it's a cush job. Yeah. But like you said, it's a friend. It's somebody who you're going to listen to, which is important to the story. And then it says, and his baker, which is another one of these positions where if you're going to poison somebody, you're coming to the cupbearer or you're coming to the baker who is making his food. So these are people that are very trusted by Pharaoh. And they committed an offense against their Lord, the King of Egypt. We're not told what. It says, Pharaoh was angry with the two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. Guess who that is? They're in a jail in Potiphar's house. Mm. The guy who's running the jail is not Potiphar. So think about how wealthy Potiphar has to be. That there's a jail. Is a dungeon underneath? <laughs> there's a jail in his house and a warden that's over the jail uh, who's different than him. And the prison, and this is where Joseph is confined. And the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. One night, they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each one his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. And, and this, by the way, you notice all dreams in the story of Joseph come with two dreams. Mm. Right. So you have Joseph initially, who's going to have two dreams about how his family is going to bow down to him. Here you have two dreams of the baker and the cupbearer. And in the following chapter, we'll see that Pharaoh has two dreams. And there's, there's a reason for that, that Joseph is going to tell us in the story. Verse six, when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in the master's house. Why are your faces downcast today? Which I think is so interesting that all of this goes down because Joseph cared about other people in the midst of being in prison. Yeah. Cause you see this whole thing is he's like, he sees that they're trouble and he could just, we're in prison together and I'm just going to pass by. Yeah. But Joseph's whole life opens up because he's still caring about people it's actively true. in Good. prison, which is a wild thing to think about his character. That's like, Hey, we're all in prison together. You probably just look troubled because you're in prison. <laughs> yeah. You know, all of a sudden he's... Suck it up, buttercup. Yeah, like, we're all here together. <laughs> this is what life is like now for us. But he just, his care and concern, even in this moment, which I just yeah. thought of, because it's the first time where I was like, oh, Joseph's the one who reaches out to them in order for, like, this is where his life starts to turn around, finally. 
But this this means that under Joseph's charge, people are not downcast, right? Because he notices someone's downcast. Yeah, it's abnormal. So in this prison, for whatever reason, under his management, he has made people joyful. What a wild ride. <laughs> this is, that's a really good point. I'd never noticed that before. So he notices their face is downcast because no one else's face is downcast, and he wants them to be joyful. It's the wants, best prison in the world. Yeah, right, right. Like, and I'm not thinking Egyptian prisons are all that hot, but this no. one, they're they're pretty happy. <laughs> and they said to him, "We we've had dreams, and there's no one to interpret them." And Joseph said, "Don't interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me." So here you have Joseph. He's evangelistic. He's like, hey, you know, you're looking at all this Egyptian garbage that you're surrounded by and all the Egyptian magicians and everyone. Of course, they can't translate it. This belongs to God. Only my God can do this, which is a dangerous statement to say. Verse 9, so the chief cupbearer told his dreams to Pharaoh, and he said to him, in my dream, there was a vine before me. And on the vine, there were three branches. And as soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. And I took the grapes and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Then he gives this command, right? Like, you're going to be restored. You're a really important person to Pharaoh. You know, I'm telling you not to worry about this dream. Verse 14, only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. So get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into this pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and the, and the uppermost basket, there, there were all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh, but, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And so he's coming to Joseph. He's being like, all right, the cupbearer got a great interpretation. Yeah, he's like, let's strike while the iron's hot. Yeah. Let's, let's keep going. Let's yeah, turn some keep, wins into wins. I keep passing out this good news. Whereas his dream is very much different than what he just heard. <laughs> so I like his optimism, though. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. Ugh. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. So so here you have Joseph who's wanting to bring joy around the prison. And he doesn't just, you know, you're going to be hung. And then the birds are going to eat your flesh. <laughs> like, wow. All right, Joseph, you, you could have just said, you could have just said hung. That's not the way uh, to give bad news these days. Yeah, no. Like, there's no fluff in that. No. And so you have radically different interpretations from these two people. And so like in your imagination, so he's arresting the cupbearer and the baker. And someone, obviously some poisons involved, right? Don't yeah. You think? Like Pharaoh got word. I think Pharaoh had to have gotten word that assassination plot was happening. And he just said, okay, everybody who has anything to do with assassination, <laughs> you're possibility, out. We're starting over. You're going to prison. And Joseph is like, okay, cupbearer. You know, in the dream, you're you're vindicated. You're okay, but Baker, you're you're probably guilty. <laughs> you know, I think the Lord is revealing your guilt. You're going to be killed, and then sure enough, on the other side of that dream, Pharaoh apparently found out what the truth was. Yeah, like the investigation ended finally. He's got the results. Yeah, Cupbearer's good. He had nothing to do with this, but the Baker was scheming with, you know, whoever, and he needs to be killed. And so on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday. <laughs> He made a feast for all of his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker. I always get hung up on whether it's hung or hang. That's a, yeah, that's a tough. You hanged a that's person a and hung a picture, right? He hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. And so here's... You know, the cherry on top of all of Joseph's sufferings, you know, we're creeping up on whatever year 11 or 12 of all of his injustices. And it says, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. Which would be hard to do. So obviously that's ordained too. Yeah. You would think this cupbearer, like, 
that would be on my mind. Yeah, that's if, pretty wild. If somehow this dream happened, I get restored, and this guy just happened to tell me about it beforehand because of a weird dream I had, and he was exactly right. That dude dies, I get restored. I think the first thing I'd be like is, "Whoa, you guys met Joseph?" <laughs> I wonder if you. I wonder if Pharaoh comes to him and it's like, "Your office is back," and he's like, "All right, I'm not saying a word. Yeah, I'm, like, not, I'm not jinxing anything. Just get me out of this room as fast as I can." Smile and wave. Let's <laughs> yeah, go. That's right. And so it says he forgot him. You know, he absolutely forgot him. And so here at this point in the story, um, you, you see this servant of God who is so faithful and taking all of the injustices and false accusations, and he is walking through them faithfully. He's not cursing God. He's not, you know, bad-mouthing him. He is being faithful and talking to everybody that he comes in contact with, that all of his blessings come from God. And so what I want to do now before before we go forward into the next chapter is let me just run down a list of who Joseph is and what his life looks like. And you t- tell me if this sounds familiar. He is a shepherd. He is the father's beloved son. He is clothed in majesty. He testifies of the brother's sins. Every knee will bow down to him. He's betrayed for silver. The traitors plot, plotted to kill him. He's stripped of his robe. The tunic is stained in blood. He is bound and led away into captivity by Gentiles. He is falsely accused. He is imprisoned with two criminals. One of those criminals will be spared. And the other one will be condemned. He forgives his persecutors as he is separated from his father. And then that's where the bad news part of Joseph's life ends. But what does that sound like? I mean, that's the clearest picture of Jesus you see Isn't Christologically. Yeah. And and the whole thing is when Jesus is going through his suffering, he's always got the same mind as Joseph. He's, he is suffering and pointing people to the Father. He is being betrayed and pointing people to the Father. He is, he is being rejected at every turn and pointing people at, toward the Father. Um, and so it's, it is such a, a wonderfully clear picture of Jesus. And when we get into the next chapters, that's where you see Joseph's story is going to be turned. And you see God's promise of every knee bowing to him and him being exalted You see all of that turn, and at the end of the story, when you're able to look back, you see none of that would have been possible had all the ugly parts not been ordained, had he not been betrayed, had he not gone to Potiphar, had he not met the cupbearer who had an ear to the Pharaoh, and Joseph had built all this credibility through these encounters to where, you know, in the next chapter, we're going to see that he's going to be exalted to the highest chair of Egypt. But none of that would have been possible had he not first walked through this valley of suffering. And that is one of the key tenets of the Christian faith is that suffering comes before glory. And the more that we recognize that the road of suffering, the crown of thorns, the carrying the crosses, all of that is on a way to a glory that is far beyond our wildest imaginations it enables us to do the cross carrying and the crown of thorns wearing with joy. It makes the pain a little, well, not a little, a lot (laughs) lighter. And it enables us to give comfort to those that are walking in the darkness and the pain and the suffering and to be able to give them hope as well. Yeah. I think that's the cool part about our job today is we get to say to all of you out there, because you're going through some sort of suffering that, the Lord is with you. That's true. Which is awesome. Every every shift in Joseph's story, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. And like you said, the Lord is with all of you out there. So no matter what you're walking through, it might seem like you've just taken a turn downward. Mm-hmm. You know, Remember the promise that God has given you. He will accomplish his promise. And know that that's on the other side of the suffering. And take joy and the fact that he's walking with you and has walked a far worse road of suffering for you to redeem you and to give you that promise. So never doubt his love. You are loved beyond measure. So thank you for joining us 
on this episode of the Out of Water Podcast. Uh, Join us next week as we jump into chapter 41 when we start getting some good news and Joseph is going to be on the ascending side of the story up toward his exaltation and you begin to see some, some powerful moves of God to rescue the world through his suffering servant. Sound familiar? It's a beautiful story, but we'll see you then. Have a great week. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.com.